This is The Memo by Howard Marks. Today, another episode of Behind the Memo, in which Howard sheds some light on themes from his most recent memo. Here he is discussing bull market rhymes with Oak Tree senior financial writer Anna Shemansky. Howard, you use a lot of great quotes in this memo. I thought we'd start with the one that opens the memo. History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Why did you choose to structure the memo around this idea of history rhyming? My second book was called Mastering the Market Cycle, and it was all about understanding recurring patterns as a way to, frankly, make life easier and increase our understanding of things. There are certain patterns or themes or motifs that do repeat in the investment business, especially from cycle to cycle. And to believe that they're going to repeat exactly exposes you to significant error, Mm -hmm. but to ignore the facts that they do tend to recur means you don't learn from prior generations. I've been in this business 53 years. I've lived through half a dozen major cycles and bull markets, and I've had a chance to observe certain things that do tend to recur. Not absolutely. They don't all recur all the time but that give us a sign for where we are and an appreciation for what we should do and maybe for where we're going. So I think that it's very important to know that and recognize that and act on it. And there has to be some benefit from experience. And it comes through this ability to understand and recognize patterns. And why do you think it might be particularly important for younger investors, those that may have been in high school or middle school in the late 90s? Why do you think it might be so important for them to focus on these recurring themes? I say, Anna, that in the real world, things fluctuate between pretty good and not so hot. But in the investment world, they go from flawless to hopeless because psychology swings so violently and so far. And the newcomer, might, for example, witness the stages of the bull market that I describe in the memo and say, hey, this is great. Everything's terrific. Everything will be terrific forever. There's no price too high. Regardless of what I pay, somebody else will come along to pay me more. We're going to the moon. It's different this time, so there's no need for caution. And I should plow in just like everybody else is. Everybody's plowing in. That's what creates a strongly rising bull market. It's easy to believe that you should join them or be left behind. But just when things are going well and risk aversion is in decline and fear of missing out takes over from fear of losing money and people act with less prudence, this is when we and you have to be cautious. And only by understanding this cyclical development can you do so. You say in the memo that because history has this tendency to rhyme, investors will often look to innovations as a justification for why this time is different. Could you speak about one or two of the innovations in the most recent bull market? First of all, and I think it's very important that I point out up front that the things that give life to the bull market generally contain a grain of truth. We had a huge bubble in internet and e-commerce stocks in 99 and early 2000, the rallying cry was the internet's going to change the world. Guess what? The internet changed the world and many of the people who invested in those companies lost all their money. So you ask about the most recent go around. 
the strongest performing group in the stock market was the techs and especially the fangs. It used to be fangs with Netflix. Now it's fangs. <laughs> Impossible with Microsoft. To it doesn't roll off your tongue so readily, but it's Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. These are the biggest stocks in the S&P 500 index. They dominate the performance of that index. They did extremely well in 2020 in the aftermath of the onset of the pandemic. From the low in March to September of 2020, these stocks were up at 92% and they hit new highs by a wide margin. The reason that they were accorded such great treatment by investors is that these companies have market dominance to a degree never seen before. And since their product is technological, it's relatively inexpensive to make more units to sell. The incremental costs are low, which means that the incremental profitability is very high. And these things are true. What it always comes down to is, okay, what does that make it worth? If you go back, I guess it was 400 years ago, we had something called the tulip craze. And it was based on the fact that tulips are beautiful. Guess what? Tulips are beautiful. But when people were paying the price of a large house for a tulip bulb that at best would produce some flowers and at worst would die, that was probably too much. So it all comes down to too much, but in bull markets, that's ignored. And one of the things that I do find so interesting in that section of the memo is that paradox because technological innovations really do move society yes. forward. Mm -hmm. And there is a usefulness to a certain extent of the bubble. But then, as you said, that doesn't mean that the asset prices can't still come down. Well, they may do great things for society, but may not perform as well as expected. The greatest companies may thrive. The lesser companies may suffer. They may all be replaced by the next technological developments. So it all comes down to, okay, great development, great company. What's its longevity? What's its outlook? Taken together, what does that make it worth? The last question is really tough because there is no algorithm for turning a certain view of the future into a dollar price. You can't put these qualitative, unformed elements into numbers, into computer input, and get back a fair price. It comes down to feel. It comes down to what I call insight. And the people who, on average, are more successful are the people with better insight. Yeah, so it's another example of how, in some ways, investing keeps getting harder because whereas in the past when companies, what they were producing was more tangible, maybe it was easier to say whether something was going to continue. But now, as you say, once you move into the intangible, that becomes a lot more challenging. Well, absolutely. Look at basketball. If you go back 70 years, I would imagine nobody ever thought of dunking. And then the first person dunked and then the second person said, I can do that too. And now today everybody dunks and they do tricky dunks and things that have never been seen before. So each achievement raises the bar for the next achievement. And the people who gain knowledge of a certain phenomenon, that means that the next person to get a knowledge edge has to find something else to master. Mm -hmm. And another thing we can move into is this transition from a bull market to a bear market. Sometimes it's very obvious why that happens, right. but often it's not. Yes. I think if you look at the TMT bubble, it's sometimes difficult to say why exactly that bubble burst. So I'm curious how you make sense of that transition from bullishness to bearishness when there isn't 
a discrete event causing it? That's a great question. Certainly in 2000, I just think that prices collapsed of their own weight. I keep saying that I don't think there was an identifiable cause. And then people write me and they say, well, maybe this. Their nominations are so obscure that they can't possibly be what motivated widespread psychology. I started writing my memos in 1990 and I wrote for 10 years. I never had a response. Not only did nobody say that was a great memo, nobody even said, I got it. But then in the fall of 99, with everything that was going on in the tech world, I started work on a memo ultimately called bubble.com, which I put out on the first day of 2000, first working day. And it was about the excesses that I saw taking place in the tech sector. So that memo had two main virtues. Number one, it was correct. Number two, it was correct fast. One of the oldest sayings in our business is that being too far ahead of your time is indistinguishable from being wrong. This was on time. So it was a success and it really caused the attention to my memos that they've enjoyed ever since 2000. And that actually makes me think of how, as you said in a number of other memos, that it can be difficult to be that voice that's being different. Right. Oh, yeah. And to be ahead of your time, of course, being after your time doesn't help with warnings after the event. You have to make the warning before the event, but not too far in advance that it's irrelevant. But by definition, if you're warning about something that you think is going to happen, you're in a minority. If everybody said it, it probably would have happened already. That's how markets work. But your forecasts have to be idiosyncratic to be of great value. But Dave Swenson, in his book, Pioneering Portfolio Management, used the term uncomfortably idiosyncratic. If the whole crowd says that XYZ is a buy and it's going up 10 points a day, it is uncomfortable to say, I think it's overpriced. It's a sale. First of all, you're flying in the face of the consensus. Secondly, it's probably going to keep going up for a while and you're going to look and feel terrible. So these things are not easy, but it's not supposed to be easy. And that memo, bubble.com, is there anything that you can think of maybe from that memo that is similar to what you said in your most recent memo? I think that the hallmarks of that bubble were the assumption that things would work, the assumption that everything in that category would benefit, Mm -hmm. and the assumption that for something that's going to change the world, there's no price too high. In the book, Mastering the Market Cycle, if you turn to no price too high, there are several citations in the index, because I think that this is really the hallmark of a bubble. A bull market is when people are enthusiastic about things, maybe excessively, but a bubble is when they are unquestioningly and excessively excited about things. And then they say, there's no price too high. And my early experience in my career, I came into this business when the Nifty 50 were thriving. That's the 50 best, fastest growing companies in America. They were doing great. And that's all the banks bought. The banks were the main money managers at the time, but they got to prices that were just unsustainable. So what causes the bull to turn into a bear? If you look at the Nifty 50, The real problem was they were treated as no price too high. As a result, they got up to P.E. ratios of 60 to 90, whereas the S&P norm is 16. But these unsupportable prices were exacerbated by the arrival, for example, of the Arab oil embargo of 73. Now, the point is that psychology started to weaken before that. But then when you have an exogenous event like that, it really accelerates the swing from optimistic to pessimistic. And when investors go from thinking something's flawless to thinking it's hopeless, 
huge amounts of money are lost. And it goes back to that idea of the pendulum. Right, absolutely. And by the way, as an aside, let me just say that every once in a while somebody says to me, it's not a pendulum because the strict definition of pendulum is something that hangs from a fixed point and it swings back and forth. If you look at it in physics, the swing is predictable and based on inertia and gravity, and it's consistent. I'm not saying that it's predictable or consistent, but I'm saying this is one of the themes that rhymes and people should be aware of it. Right. And it goes back to that idea of psychology. As you say, part of a bull market is the idea that good times will beget more good times. Well, it abets the rise of the bull market. We can never predict when a bull market's going to end, but the only thing we know for sure is that the higher it goes, everything else being equal, the sooner it will stop rising and the more painful the correction will be. So any final thoughts on your most recent memo? We talked about the new thing and that it's easy to assign superhuman properties to the new thing, in part because it hasn't been tested yet. And there's a quote in the memo from one of my favorites, John Kenneth Galbraith, and I think that it sums up a lot of bull market psychology. Galbraith said in a book called Short History of Financial Euphoria in 1990, Contributing to euphoria are two further factors little noted in our time or past times. The first is the extreme brevity of the financial memory. And he goes on and talks about some things that are hailed by a new, often youthful, and always supremely self-confident generation as a brilliantly innovative discovery. And then he ends up by saying, past experience, to the extent that it is part of memory at all, is dismissed as the primitive refuge of those who do not have the insight to appreciate the incredible wonders of the present. There was a great book written in 1968 called The Money Game. It was a comical book with a lot of truth in it. And it talked about how the oldest investor in the firm did really well in the tech stocks or the nifty 50 of the day because he had three kids working in the back room. He said, I can't understand it, but they can. Likewise, if you look at some of the new developments and especially things like Bitcoin, Bitcoin is absolutely, for the most part, not comprehensible by older generations. And its merits are patently obvious to the newest generation. Sometimes these things are permanent changes that work and end up being very valuable. And sometimes it's more like the emperor's new clothes where the new generation can't see that these things don't have merit. I think that this is an important quotation that I would urge all my readers to read and reread and think about. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Anna. Thank you for listening to The Memo by Howard Marks. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast expresses the views of the author as of the date indicated and such views are subject to change without notice. Oak Tree has no duty or obligation to update the information contained herein. Further, Oak Tree makes no representation and it should not be assumed that past investment performance is an indication of future results. Moreover, wherever there is a potential for profit, there is also the possibility of loss. This podcast is being made available for educational purposes only and should not be used for any other purpose. The information contained herein does not constitute and should not be construed as an offering of advisory services or an offer to sell or solicitation to buy any securities or related financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Certain information contained herein concerning economic trends and performances based on or derived from information provided by independent third-party sources. 
Oak Tree Capital Management LP, Oak Tree, believes that the sources from which such information has been obtained are reliable. However, it cannot guarantee the accuracy of such information and has not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of such information or the assumptions on which such information is based. This podcast, including the information contained herein, may not be copied, reproduced, republished, or posted in whole or in part in any form without the prior written consent of Oak Tree. Audiation.